You're listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Now for political insight and strategy, let's get started with your hosts, Howard Schweitzer and Mark Alderman. Caitlin and Patrick, it is Friday, March 5th. I cannot believe it's March. Mark is once again on assignment skiing in Vermont. I'm going to um, rat him out. Yeah, he's been <laughs> outed for sure, but he's vaccinated and I'm happy for him, but he's on assignment. Uh, so in preparing for this call, let's start here. I, I think one interesting thing although maybe this is not the kind of thing you should admit on the podcast that you hope people are listening to is there's kind of less, not kind of, there's less to talk about day to day now than there was six months ago, which by the way, from my point of view, thank goodness. Um, but, and I, I know there's like heavy partisanship and people are fighting over stuff, but it's the temperature is, way down patrick washington finally gets a weekend again howard kind of sorta um but yeah i mean it's it's well what it is is not we're not seesawing every five seconds from tweet to tweet and we don't have drama there's just no drama yeah you have a conversation based a little more in reality Um, And that isn't to say one side is right or wrong, but I think this is a product of we're we're just not, we're not having this like crazy everyday kind of thing. And you brought up the tweets, the tweeting, you know, we're debating budgetary impact and (laughs) like a bunch of kind of boring normal stuff that uh, is good. That's, that's what government is, is supposed to be a healthy debate of, real ideas amongst people who represent different parts of the country and disagree. And that's, that's all good stuff. Um, you know, the last four years left us all exhausted because it didn't feel like we were debating in reality. A lot of the time it was, we were, you know, we just weren't. I mean, it's so it's, 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 you know, there's this whole debate was Trump a symptom or a cause and I think the conclusion is kind of both, but how, how did we get here? Like we're all talking every day about partisanship versus bipartisanship. We've got this $1.9 trillion package that they're doing through reconciliation that's going to get done this weekend, supposedly. And But how did we get to... Trump and and the polarization that we're talking about all day long. I mean, is it is it is it as bad as people say it is? And I don't know. It's that my view is eighty percent of the country is is in the middle. They may be on like one side or the other. They may lean one way or they may lean another way, but. I think 80% of the country, if you take the personalities out of it, Trump's personality out of it, 80% of the country can sit down and have a cocktail and agree about 80% of the issues. 
and like agree to disagree about the other 20%. It's the, it's the 10% on the fringes that suck all the oxygen out of the room. And I, I don't, and I, ugh, I just find it, I find it incredibly frustrating and they're, they're controlling the dialogue and, but I, I don't know how we got here. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I, I think, um, it's a focus on, uh, things that draw attention, uh, and stir up emotion with people. Um, I think it, there's been some political realignment, which anytime that happens causes a lot of sort of concern, you know, there, there has just been, there's been a shift in the way people live and what party they affiliate with. Um, when I was growing up, the suburbs were Republican and it was just like kind of textbook economic issues that's changed. Um, mm -hmm. and I know the suburbs is kind of a broad term, but it's just, most people kind of have an idea in their own head of what they think of the suburbs are. And, uh, that's changed. And there's a lot of working class union people who were, were democratic supporters for a long time. And they're, they're Republican affiliated now, or at least Trump affiliated, um, and so I, but I agree with you, Howard, I think that the tone is all focused on kind of this small set of issues that, that cause disagreement. Great news for our adversaries, by the way, great news for every time I am on social media, I'm off it for Lent. Fortunately, anytime I go on and I see someone share some picture that was created by someone in another country saying, share this, if you support the flag or share this. If you, it, it, this is all about, about our adversaries trying to divide us. Patrick, I thought you gave up drinking last week for Len. Now it's social media. <laughs> no, I gave up drinking for January social media oh, for Len. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Caitlin, what do you think? You know, we've talked about this a lot. I think there, you know, are, yes, there are a lot of people that feel left behind, that feel like the government isn't being accountable to them, that yeah. are frustrated. And the pandemic has only exacerbated a lot of those fault lines. I think that's what it is. I think you're right. I think it's inequity. And we've talked about this a bit before. It's people feeling left behind. It is, you know... There, there's a lot of, there's a lack of fairness out there. There's a just huge swaths, swaths of the country um, feeling left behind. You're right. And, you know, and it's not a particular um, category of people. It's a lot of people. It's a lot of people. Um you know, all around it's, it's, um, factory workers in middle America, it's people in, in cities. It's some of it is a lack of fairness and, and, and racism. Some of it is, I mean, there's definitely the racial element there's, but there's also, I think, a lot of it has to do with more borderless societies and information technology and just the recalibration of the economy. And I'll tell you, I mean, I know from my TARP days, bailouts and bonuses exacerbate that. Um, 
and, and exacerbated it in 0809. But now it's like, what do we do? What do we do about that? And I, I, I don't think Washington, you know, there's this fight over the $15 minimum wage and what will and won't happen. I just don't, I just don't know that Washington has a good answer yet. There was a great piece in Politico. I don't know if you guys read, but I, I just thought it was it, it was really an interesting observation about the culture wars and how Biden and his administration are taking the tack of kind of ignoring it. And, and it is a really interesting observation, given that the last administration leaned into the culture wars. Right. They, I mean, when there was a hot button flames of it, Yeah. Like they found or at least the president, they found political benefit by rallying their people behind uh, one particular side of, of these really hot button cultural issues. And I think it actually, in addition to being a good observation, I think it's the right strategy for the Biden administration to address, Howard, what you're talking about. How do you move on? Is to, you, People don't need their leader, their political leaders to weigh in on every single issue all the time. And our last two presidents have both done that in dramatically different ways, but whether it's ego or obsession with being setting the tone of the conversation, uh, it always seems that the president has something to say about it. I, for one, as kind of a middle of the road guy, if our president doesn't comment on every single sort of hot button issue that's taking place in the country, I think that's a positive development for kind of resetting things a little bit. So, so you think Obama did that? I do. I, well, I think what, I think what president Obama did was he had to, he had to be, he always kind of thought he had something wise to say about every single issue. And sometimes when you're the president, even if you make a really good point, just by nature of weighing in, you're going to inflame your adversaries and make the, the conversation mm-hmm. worse. And mm-hmm. he actually, I think, referenced that in his book. There was more he wanted to say on issues of race and things that he felt really personally about, but was fearful of the backlash that would that would come if you. And I just think, you know, I think Biden is smart to be careful about where he uses the presidency and the bully pulpit to weigh in because you immediately inflame the whole situation. I mean, what Biden isn't going to do that Obama did is rub the other side's face in it. Like there's, there was the famous interaction with Eric Cantor at the white house talking about, I don't remember what it was. Maybe it was the recovery act in 09 where Obama told him you lost. And I mean, that was a bad moment. Not obviously nothing even remotely approaching what Trump did um, in, you know, personally attacking people, frankly, Democrats and Republicans who, who disagreed. But, but I still feel like the no, neither side, I think neither side has an answer. This is what I'm trying to get to. Neither side has an answer for what ails us economically. And this is at the end of the day about the economy. It's about money. It's about money in people's pockets and feeling like they are being treated fairly from an economic point of view. And so when you don't have money, what you do, when you can't fix the the money problem, 
at least on the on the Republican side with Trump, they went to the cultural issue. And 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 but I still don't think people that voted for Trump are not better off today than they were four years ago. And I still don't think that the country has a has a fix for what ails us, which at the end of the day is about economic fairness. And I you know, I, I feel like we're dancing around the issue in Washington, but until, and maybe this is the point on bipartisanship, until there's like a, an approach on that that everybody can buy into on some level, or at least a direction, like that's that's what we need to do to get past this terrible period of politics. Yeah. So, Howard, what I hear you're saying is passing large, comprehensive bills through partisan party lines and reconciliation is maybe not the way to go about it. Is that is that what I hear, Howard? Well, I think we have to deal with COVID as as a problem. You know, I don't I I think they probably went too big here. I think some of their own people told them they went too big. You know, obviously it's deficit funded, so it's enormously significant from a from a monetary perspective. Um, but I think we need to get away. You know, the other thing is we've had crisis after crisis after crisis, and we're already, as we should be, trying to address the next crisis, which is climate. Um, and we've, we've had 9-11, we've had multiple wars, we've had the financial crisis, we've had COVID. We haven't even, we haven't had the opportunity. Everything's in response to something and nothing is kind of forward thinking and, and strategic. I do think there's some stuff, I think it'll be a really bullish sign if the parties can come together and do something around infrastructure and and um you know climate and and green jobs later this year um because i think that's that's a way to rebuild the economy that's more forward thinking but i also think there's some i mean no one's ever accused me of being anything but a capitalist but we got to make sure that every we have to make sure that everybody is is taken care of you can't have people can't have people in the country living on nothing and expect them to be happy and satisfied. Yeah, you're totally right. And look, infrastructure presents a great opportunity because it's something people can see and feel and understand and physically kind of get. My dad is a high school administrator. He always told me when you do school referendums that building referendums are always the easiest ones to get passed because people can see the the physical structure go up and that that's a lot easier than saying, you know, we need more money for programs or whatever. Um, but climate change is going to be a tough one. You know, when we think about the biggest problems we've faced as a country and, and how we've addressed them, even if we disagree on the means to do it, people all believed that the great depression was happening. At least I think people all believed world war II was actually taking place. At least I think people thought so. 
people recognized the financial crisis was happening, even though if it impacted people differently, there's a big group of people out there who just don't accept that climate change is real. And it's not like a big group of people out in the country. It's also a big group of people in Congress. And, you know, that is going to make, it's really hard to address a challenge if, if like almost yes. half of the people don't think it's real. Right. So that's look at COVID. Yeah. Oh, it's a, that's a, another great example. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, yeah. All these people that think that it's, that have convinced themselves that it's the common cold and can go anywhere and they don't have to mask up. And I had a bunch of calls this week from clients with operations in Texas about whether they could still require their customers and employees to wear masks after the you know relaxation, I'll call it, of the rules down there by by Governor Abbott. It's um it is uh you know it, I mean it's it's absurd, but I think that people need uh, that we need to deal with this in a transformative way and just putting a bunch of money. What I think Caitlin is just putting a bunch of money out from an economic point of view. I get why some of that had to happen, you know, in the early stages of COVID and I get that some of it has to happen now. Um, but I've also heard from a lot of clients that they can't get, they can't fill their jobs. Like right, there are jobs right. out there. And states are reopening and we're, we should be incentivizing folks to get back to work, not right. to stay at home and, and make more than they were making before. I'd rather spend our money and it is our money. I'd rather spend our money on economic, on, on tra transforming our economy, on skills training and, and being preparing to be competitive with China. Um, you know, on preparing people to deal in the world from an information technology perspective on rural broadband and making sure everybody has internet access and high speed internet access and, and things that really actually matter for the future economically in in 09, when they did the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, they basically dumped a whole bunch of money out into the system, you know, out into the states and projects got done and lots of projects didn't get done and it wasn't very strategic and it wasn't it wasn't tra transformational and we need transformational. And yes, we need it from a climate perspective, but we really need it from an economic competitiveness perspective because that's why so many people, that's part of the reason why so many people feel left behind. That's my story and I'm sticking to it. So what do you guys think about um, prospects for more bipartisanship? Well, I, I heard I uh, had several calls with Capitol Hill um, this week, and it does seem like on infrastructure, they're starting to look at a bi something bipartisan and, and even Democratic leadership seems to be slowly, quietly walking away from the idea of necessarily using a second 
reconciliation package to do broad sweeping infrastructure. That's the message that I've been hearing this week in several uh, meetings with both sides of the aisle, but particularly among Democrats that, you know, maybe they agree, let's try to build some bipartisan consensus around infrastructure. Patrick? I hate to be pessimistic. I really, it's not in my nature. I'm, I'm typically a pretty happy uh, guy, but I, I just think at the end of the day, my best guess is that they are, I think people of, of good faith and goodwill are going to try uh, for a little while to see if they can get something bipartisan and the gulf will just be too too large and and i saw to caitlin's point about just kind of how the week went i saw this group of members come out of the meeting with the white house and immediately you start seeing lines in the sand get drawn publicly and and all of us have been in washington long enough to know that that doesn't mean that there's not room to maneuver privately uh when you're talking about what a comprehensive bipartisan package could look like but it's it's going to be tough you know it it it's just going to be really challenging to get both sides to agree on what the scope of a package should look like. Um, and a lot of that is going to be on the climate stuff there, you know, chairman DeFazio has a lot he wants to do in that area. And I think ranking member Graves has very little he wants to do in that area, if anything at all. So what is going to be the measure of bipartisanship that each party will allow of the other is, is, 25% of what you want enough? Does it have to be 50-50? You know, what that ends up looking like. And I just I just don't know if they're going to be able to negotiate something that satisfies both sides. Well, and the and other I, question is, do they have consensus within their own caucus? I mean, you know, Senator Manchin, again, we've talked about him a lot. We'll continue yeah. talking about him a lot over the next at least two years. But is he going to be in agreement on some of these broad sweeping climate provisions? Some of the other more moderate Democrats, I think one of the things we saw this week in particular was some of the sway that moderate Democratic senators really have in pushing the White House to renegotiate certain provisions of the COVID relief bill this week. Um, in you know, striking down today during the Senate voterama, uh, an amendment on um, $15 minimum wage, there were eight Democratic senators that voted against that amendment. I think we, you know, assume in our in our minds that some broad sweeping infrastructure bill could be done through reconciliation, but I'm not quite sure that they're united in their caucus on that. Yeah, both, Caitlin, you make a really good point, both politically and then also, you know, we the, the what reconciliation can ultimately do was shown in a bunch of different ways with the minimum wage getting stripped out, individual projects in California and New York getting stripped out. So, it's not going to be like they can use reconciliation for some package that gives members a bunch of individual things they want. They're, they're not going to be able to do it. So is the political support there and is reconciliation even a conceivable possible vehicle to achieve that type of public policy outcome? I, I agree. I think it's, it's going to be really difficult. And so maybe they ultimately feel like it's bipartisanship through regular order or, or nothing at all, except kind of the the broad based revenue provisions that they try to get in a. In a and another example, package. another example that we saw this week too in the House is with Democrats realizing that this sweeping broad immigrant comprehensive immigration reform proposal, not something that they even are united in their caucus on and can quickly move through, is 
Um, a lot of folks might know the House is has been trying to push through several of the bills that they passed last year in order to send them over to the Senate and help for swift action. And the immigration provision proposal was was not included in their realizing that they've got some work to do there. Can I just say, because you brought up the moderate Democrats thing, though, too, this is where kind of the the equilibrium in each party is, I find to be so interesting because, well, I think overall there's just less moderates in both parties than than there used to be for a whole bunch of, of reasons. Um, it feels to me like the Democratic Party is a little better and more effective at knocking down kind of the the more extreme parts of their party, uh, and particularly from a policy perspective, like when the progressives want something, like the adults kind of step up and they're like, yeah, you can't do that. And then they're and then they're like, oh, and they, you know, get all upset and everything else. But it just seems like the adults are kind of in charge. I can't figure out in the Republican Party, like where, who are the adults anymore and who is in control. Like when you have two thirds of these guys in the House voting not to certify the election results. It's like that. I don't know why they can't just seem to keep the kind of more extreme parts in line, but I think it's because there's more of them in the Republican caucus and there's less of them in the Democratic caucus. But Caitlin, I would be curious what you think about that. I think there's a very clear difference between the House and the Senate, as we've spoken about many, many times. And I think that you know, even the progressives in the House on the Democratic side are louder and, um, you know, more forceful. But the Senate is where things go to moderate. The saucer that cools the cup, right? Yes. Yeah. It just seems like our crazy, the crazier people on the left don't ever really get what they want. And it seems, and I just think people on the right don't really get what they want either, Patrick. Sometimes, I don't know. I guess that's where it's like, what do you determine as kind of, where is the middle of each party anymore? That's like when, when Joe Biden was a U.S. Senator, he was not considered a moderate Democrat. He wasn't. He was, he was a mainstream Democrat. uh, He was wherever the center of the party was. Yeah. Like he was not like a, conservative red state Democrat, right? He would, so, but now where the party equilibrium has shifted, like he is viewed as a moderate, which is just kind of interesting. He's, I think people are overestimating his moderation. Agreed. Yeah. Which is what you're saying. He's an Uh, institutionalist. Yes. Those things are different. Yeah. I mean, he's a 40 year inhabitant of the swamp He's not looking to change the swamp. He's looking to reinvigorate, in a good way, the institutions of government and and the institution within Congress, the 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 normalcy of the Senate and the moderation of the Senate. Um, it's it's interesting. I mean, I think that, and I think he's doing that by not, you know, by even if his, some of his appointees are um, more left-leaning <laughs> progressives, and they certainly are, he's filling jobs. I mean, half the battle here is you want to see your institutions up, up and running normally. Like, they're not going to go over the deep end. Right. They're, just, they're just running. Um, they're, they're built not to go over the deep end. That's what the bureaucracy is for. 
So, Caitlin, what do you think? I I agree on the Stun idea of silence. institutionalism versus um you know versus moderation. I agree. Yeah. All right, guys. Well, happy Friday. You're not going to have me grade the Biden administration this week. I was gonna, is, I had a good answer for this. What's your answer? Grade the Biden I, administration, Caitlin. I am exceedingly impressed with how on message they have been, particular in this week in particular. You know, we had um, our new education secretary Cardona out with Dr. Jill Biden touring schools, talking about the importance of school reopenings and K through twelve. We had um, you know some good news about vaccines coming out and. President Biden telling folks that he really thinks that by the middle of summer, there'll be enough vaccinations for, for America, you know, not agreeing with everything that's happening there. Certainly. The end of May, the end of May, enough vaccine supply for everybody. But I've been very impressed with how on message this administration has been able to be. There you go. I'm giving him an A minus for that. Gritting her teeth. Wow. Wow. That's come up, Patrick. I, I Yeah. I mean, listen, I, all I'll say is, listen, we all know polls are what they are and most of them are probably wrong, but if, if in any way they provide some sort of snapshot, um, I think they're interesting and sometimes polls kind of reaffirm what you may already think, but listen, if the A poll, AP poll is even remotely right, that he's got a 60% job approval rating and about a quarter of Republicans think he's doing an okay job. That's a good place to be. And, and He's got the he's got the full support of the Democratic Party, even if they're going to get frustrated about certain priorities and not getting rid of the filibuster. If he can hold the very diverse, multifaceted Democratic coalition together and get enough Republicans who are turned off by the way that Trump behaved and acted and governed, he's going to he's going to remain in a in a perfectly fine political place going forward. Mm-hmm. Agree. All right. Well, guys, fun as always. Have a great weekend and we will be, be we will be back next week. Perhaps Mark will have returned from assignment. We'll see. <laughs> thanks, Howard. All right. Thanks, Thank guys. you. You've been listening to the Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Please subscribe to our podcast so our episodes are automatically sent to you when they are released. The Beltway Briefing Podcast has been produced by Hometown Podcasts and Audio, Washington, D.C.